Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. This is episode 45. And in this episode, Chad Flynn is back with us. Yes, the Chad Flynn is back with us. We also sit down with Adam and Nikki. So this is a reunion tour with Pints and Pedagogy. This is Pints and Pedagogy number two. Today's topic is hidden curriculum. Specifically, what are the implications and impact of hidden curriculum in our praxis, especially in our assessment methodology? Sit back, relax, take some notes. We'll see you on the other side. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. This is Pints and Pedagogy number two. That is a truckload of peas again. Yes, a ton of peas. That's a, okay. <laughs> P, P to the sectillion, whatever it is. Anyway, here we are. Welcome back, you two, Adam and Nikki. Chad, nice to see you. You're back from assignment. Nice to see you. You're looking yeah. and dapper as, as usual. Yeah, you know, hanging out in Langley, BC <laughs> on assignment. <laughs> Rip roaring Langley, BC, eh? Yep. Okay, good. Hey, well, I'm excited. I don't know about you guys, but I'm excited. Well, anytime yes. we can all get a bunch of people together and crack open a beer and talk about pedagogy is a good time. Always a good time. Always a good time. Yep. Very good. Okay. So, uh, the question of the day, I sent it to, uh, Nikki and Adam. Chad, I didn't get a chance to send it to you, but <laughs> one second and let's just, I'm ready. Go. We've just injected fun into the, into the podcast. Here we go. Here's the question. What are the implications and impact of hidden curriculum? in our praxis, especially in our assessment methodology? That's the question. Oh, Chad's taking a big lean back on his chair. Yeah, <laughs> can I can just do that one off the, I'll just riff. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Buckle up. So I guess we need to start with what, what do we mean by hidden curriculum? Cause I've, I've heard this term a lot and I think I know, but I don't really know. So enlighten me. What does hidden curriculum really mean? Who wants to start? <laughs> Well, actually, I have a, I don't have an answer, but I have a question, uh, <laughs> as you, as you do, but why, why is it hidden curriculum and not invisible curriculum or unperceived curriculum? Right. Or biased curriculum. Good questions, Adam. I'm going to write all those down. I love that question because hidden, hidden sort of suggests that there's some kind of intention, uh, intention towards keeping it out of the limelight. But I think the big part about hidden is half the time you don't know what's there. Yeah. I think invisible curriculum is way nicer to use because hidden curriculum is like, ha ha, guess what? You learned how to collaborate. And you're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so is it kind of like pulling the wool over people's eyes and telling and getting them to work through stuff and not telling them the why and the, and the direction. And then when they get there, you reveal it to them or like, what is that? So, I mean, I actually, I mean, if you read the literature and I don't think we here on a Friday afternoon with bees and I had want to get too in the weeds of theory and philosophy, well, maybe we do. I'm not sure, <laughs> but, <I don't> mind. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I, it, it sort of wrapped up in critical theory and, and issues of power and hierarchy and um, things that are unsaid and undone. But um, it's, it's a topic though, that I like to bring out. I like to unhide hidden curriculum as well. And uh, I, I like to think of it as 
it's, it's what students hear and experience. Regardless of what was intended or what the outcome said or how the institution um, is intended to be experienced and the teaching is intended to be experienced, it's what is experienced. Um, so that's how I see it. It's about what students take away. And, and I guess my, my definition too is similar, but it's learning that is not openly defined. Um, so that's more from an, like I'm approaching it from an invisible perspective. Um, and there is a bit of a power dynamic there too. Sorry, I have a, there's a crying two-year-old in the back. But then the other thing is I want to bring up another term, the null curriculum. And this is something that became... What, 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 what is that? Null, N-U-L-L, null curriculum. And this is the curriculum and it's linked. It's a part of hidden curriculum, but this is the, the curriculum bit that is left out for it could be intentional, it could be unintentional, but these are the, the un, like, why was this not put into the curriculum? Um, so we, we do have to make choices about how we design things and how we, how we structure things. And certain things are constructed and certain things aren't constructed. So the null curriculum is the unconstructed Things, the things that are left out of the learning experience. And uh, so I think that's important to bring into this kind of conversation as well. Yeah, and that's because students hear something about that, about what's left out. Um, there's always that, and it goes back to that message. And um, again, to, to keep it out of the, the theory weeds, the reason why for me this is really, really important is because um, as a as a teacher, I've been a teacher for over 20 years, is when I talk to students um, years later about like when they were in my grade six class, grade, you know, 15 years ago, or, uh, or I talk to um, people who are recalling their school experiences, you never hear them recall the things they learned. They tend to, what sticks with them is uh, what they learned about themselves through that, through that experience, what they learned about the content. So I, an example of this is, I mean, I'm a, a math pedagogue. This is before I came into higher ed. I was a, a math specialist and I teach math pedagogy. And the thing I hear all the time is I have no idea about math. I just know uh, what it makes me feel like it, like math sent me a message that about myself, about mathematics. And for me, it's all like, it's often very incorrect. Um, and, and yeah, it also says you talk about people that didn't survive in the school system or, you know, weren't successful in school, uh, the hidden curriculum sent them a message about what was important in the world and what was important in life. And, and they were not successful at that. And so then they left. And so for me, it's, it's, it's actually, I think more powerful than the actual explicit curriculum or the intended curriculum or the, you know, the outcomes on the, on the course syllabus is the hidden curriculum. So for me, I'm very passionate about it and I'm sure we'll get to why it connects to assessment eventually, but I don't know, Tim, like, I would be curious to know, Tim, you and Chad, what you think it is. Well, Todd, for me anyways, and because this is all brand new to me, having just heard about this hidden curriculum. Um, <laughs> <laughs> about a minute and a half ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, for me, I always thought of, thought of it 
is exactly what you're saying there, Nick. It's like the things that they, when we talk to our students later on in life, what did they, what did they remember about it? And if they don't remember that they learned Pythagoras theorem, but they remember how certain things, concepts made them feel. And one thing that has been really kind of resonating with me lately is how that hidden curriculum or invisible curriculum is not agnostic. It's, it's like you just said, like it can be dangerous and it can, it sets up expectations. So I'm glad you brought this whole topic up to him because there's a hidden curriculum where maybe it is hidden in the sense that sometimes instructors don't even know it's there. See, yeah. And I, I can see a bunch of spinoffs from this, but I don't think we're going to cover it off in the hour that we're together. Cause I've got so many questions now, like, cause it's, cause I don't know a lot about it quite honestly. Right. And so I'm really excited to get into this with the three of you because I want to know more about it. I, I know just by the, the breaking of the ice on the top of the surface that I've been guilty of doing this without even knowing it. And then when I found out, it's like, Oh no way <laughs> I've been doing this. Um, without any ill, ill regard, like I'm not doing it on purpose. I'm just, I've just done it. And, and it's quite frankly, it's, it's kind of alarming to, to know the impact of this because, Oh gosh, for so many different reasons, but, you know, it, it's, I get this feeling that when you're talking about it, it's almost like this dark matter in, in pedagogy or dark matter in education that everybody knows it's there, or most people know it's there, but they're quite, they're not really ready to, as you said, Nikki, get into the, the theory and get into the, the epistemology of it, even get into the practice of, of it. And, and, you know, Adam, you bring up a good question, like, why is it hidden? And, and cause to me, in a binary way, well, it must be hidden on purpose. If it's hidden, right, it's got to be hidden to somebody and somebody must know that it's there. But then my own experience goes, well, I didn't really know I was doing it, but I'm doing it anyway. Does that make sense? Kind of feel like I'm a dog chasing its own tail a little bit with this right now. I like the fact, I like, yeah, I like the dark matter anal uh, metaphor analogy. I think that's pretty cool. However, I, I do want to caution the fact that for me, hidden curriculum is not always bad. Oh, because okay. Okay. I think the, um, I, the other way I like to put it, I, when I've taught teach, I, I was a, uh, education professor here in Calgary for eight years. And I would pose this question to my pre-service teachers all the time. And I say the hidden curriculum is basically the answer to this question. What is the side effects of being educated by you in, at this time, in this institution, under these conditions? Like, and I mean, a lot of it, you can't answer, but you can certainly address the personal one. And I would ask my students and as I tried to uncover my own hidden curriculum, like what, what do you think the hidden, the uh, side effects of being educated by Nikki is, for example, and it's pretty confronting. Uh, Cause there are some, you know, like any, anyone that's been in my class will know that I have a tendency towards competition. I love games. I love gamification. I love setting things up for like, I love picking, um, uh, pitting groups against each other is how I, I, because I love it. I assume everyone else does. So I've had students say to me, you know, I come into your class and I hear that all the time. And that is a side effect of being educated by Nikki. And, I'm, and, and I have to, at least I can then confront it and decide, is that okay? How do I balance that? But at the same time, I mean, you guys probably tell already, I'm like super jacked on life and I'm always full of crazy ideas. And I'm like, I bounce into a classroom and people say that that's a positive part of my hidden curriculum is that compared to other side effects of instructors but there are some negative parts too. So yeah, it's not all bad. It's not all dark matter, but it is dark matter. Yeah. No. And, and I kind of want to riff off that um, metaphor a bit too. 
and another metaphor that kind of comes to mind for me that might be helpful um, just to get it out of that good, bad kind of category um, is uh, a picture negative. So but like back in the old days when you had the film, uh, <laughs> the, the, you would get the negative of the picture, right? But when you uh, produce that picture, you don't see that uh, you know, you don't necessarily see that the negative, um, but that is what is needed to create the, um, the picture. Right. Um, so it's, it's a bit imperceivable. Right. Um, and I think like, obviously there's, yeah. Yeah. So it's just there. This is the water we're swimming in and, uh, where it gets, into the positive and negative is when uh, people don't necessarily um, do well at the hidden curriculum. And this is, so when you sent the email to me, my, I started thinking first the invisible kind of thing came up. The second thing that came up was uh, thinking about just development in general and my, my old job. And it's interesting because Nikki has experience in K to 12, right? And I have a bit of that as well. And I used to do adventure-based learning before this job. And uh, I used to work with at-risk youth who um, basically, they didn't succeed at the uh, hitting curriculum part. And like, it only dawned on me like midway through um, that basically these, these learners weren't succeeding at the explicit curriculum because they hadn't first learned to succeed in the hidden curriculum. And um, yeah, so, and that comes back into like the implications for design. And then again, on an assessment, like it's all kind of in this web, it's, or this tangle, right? Of how we pull on different things. But yeah, that was kind of what came to mind for me and just the importance of the reveal too. So uh, I don't, and there's a question in here too, like how much can we handle the reveal of the hidden, hidden curriculum um, and, and our students and learners, how, how much can they handle the, the, the like the, that revealing part of it? And, you know, Nikki, can talk to this, but we're as educators, we're always doing this meta part. I'm doing this because da, 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 da. and, and that can be tiresome for our learners. And they're like, I don't need to know that. Right. So, um, but yeah. See, for, I, I wonder too, like when we, I really like what you're both saying, like Nikki, when you're talking about how, what is the implications of being educated by Chad? So that would be like what I'm bringing into the situation, but then also our students are bringing in previous biases as well. And so what, and this, again, I'm asking the question, like, what do we do with that? Because we have our bias that we're bringing against their bias. And if we don't take time to reflect, I guess that's what I'm getting at is we don't take time to do some sort of reflection on our own hidden curriculum, as well as the possibility that they're the students, like what they think about things. Like I, when I in trades math, we have a bunch of students who typically in trades, right, will not be, they don't excel in the academic route. So they, they think that they have to go into trades, but nobody tells them that they're coming into a math heavy program. 
they all hate math. And then I always, the first two weeks I'm battling them just as this fear that they have for math and the hatred they have for math and, you know, math never worked for them. So they're never going to work for math. And so then you have to, as an instructor, work hard to make it fun and to show them that it's a puzzle and that get them excited about it. And it takes time for them to beat down those walls. You're fighting against their hidden or invisible or whatever the biases or hidden curriculum that they're bringing in. So it's this ongoing battle that it's just like, there's all these onions because I've got problems. They've got problems. The whole system's got problems. Burn it down. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. Chad. Oh, you heard it here first. <laughs> That's sorry. Mike Smith from an undisclosed. Uh, well, Mike Smith doesn't need to be around anymore. I don't think. No, but, he uh, doesn't. That's another conversation. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's another conversation <laughs> for another time. But um, okay. We, so we have I'm some more still, keys. We have some more piece to consider now. I mean, so I, yeah. Okay. Pyropedagogy. That's not a bad idea. Oh, that's we, so we funny. Could do a, we could do a recording around a burning barrel and <laughs> pyropedagogy. Just burn it all down. Yeah. Take our okay, favorite so, textbooks and burn them. Whoa, careful now. <laughs> okay. Anyways. Um, anyways. Okay, I'm I'm still wrestling with the dark matter piece, because um, you know it, it's one thing to say bias, uh, another thing to say hidden. Is is it the same thing? It's I'm I'm trying to connect the two, and it almost sounds like it's the same thing. And and I'll let me couch this a little bit because I'm becoming really really aware, if that's even proper English. I'm becoming really aware, more aware, of. The, like you said earlier, Nikki, the power over issue in the classroom. And especially when I'm teaching my international students, oh, there's a, there's, it's there. And it's almost impossible for me to break it down because it's so ingrained, right? I mean, I could tell them that the, the page should be purple and they'll do whatever they can to make the page purple, right? And like, it's just, it's heartbreaking sometimes. So here, here I am coming up against this topic of hidden curriculum bias and I'm working really hard now at trying to minimize it, but I know I can't. And now I'm listening to you three saying they bring bias in as well. And then there's this awesome question, which I think is going to be the title of this episode, the side effects of being taught by you. (laughs) I love that. I think that's, that's something that every, everybody who's an educator, that's one of the first questions you should be asked in an interview. It's, well, it's just kicks you right in the shins, right? Right? Yeah. It just kicks you right in the shins. <laughs> and it's a good kick. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. We're going to kick you in the shins. Um, so, okay. So I think, I'm, I think I'm beginning to put this together, that it's, it's more bias than it is in, in, than anything. Um, and, and it's almost like Adam, you're drawing some lines here that some people do it on purpose because they, they, they may build it into a sequence of events at the end. They may or may not reveal why, or they'll tell the students at the beginning, this is why we're doing this. And this is a trajectory students say, I don't care. Just get me through it so I can get my A and get out of here. Um, is, is there some of that mixed in with this too? I, yeah, it, it's, I mean, Again, I just want to be very careful to say that if you actually go to the, the, the literature in hidden curriculum, it's very much around critical pedagogy and, and power and, and power structures and um, 
colonization and all those sorts of pieces that come with it, like power free air and, and that world, um, which is, it's important to, you know, it's important stuff, but I like to blow it up again and to make it like practical and, and sort of think about how, how is this actually something that we can all talk about, even if you don't have an MA in, you know, educational philosophy. Um, and because I think it is, yeah, I think it is in a lot of different places. And the side effect question is really important, but if you want to, um, in order to get the answer to that, I mean, we can reflect ourselves and ask, what do we want the side effect or what do we think the side effect of being educated by us is, but often we don't see our own biases and our own, what the things we bring to it. And that's, that's where it's, it's a very humbling thing. Cause you sort of have to ask your students, um, and have a conversation with students. And this is going to dive right into conversations about why you should engage your students in talking about assessment and designing assessment and, asking them what the students intentions are. Why are they here? What is my intention? And one of the questions I also ask students at the, at the end of a course generally is I will say to my students at the beginning, this is what I care about. I care about improvement and growth and your well-being and your future. So then at the end, I should then go back to them and say, what can you point to in my course in the way I taught in how I presented and showed up in how I assessed you that showed that that was true. And it's about like sort of alignment as well around what you're hoping to achieve as an, as an educator and what your students perceive or receive from that. And I've, I've been at this game for over 20 years, as I said, and I've never got this right. It's always confronting because, um, but I continue to learn and continue to understand more about myself and how it's perceived by my students. And, and that, I don't know where I got it from. So my quote, but I read it somewhere and I don't have the author, but it's students don't learn from what we say and do students learn from their interpretation of what we say and do. So I'll just let that sit for a second because that's pretty much hidden curriculum. Say that again. <laughs> students don't learn from what we say and do. They learn from their interpretation of what we say and do. Okay, I'm going to shut this podcast off because this is getting too dark for me now. <laughs> Isn't that a relationship though? Isn't that, and that's the thing, like every, we all have two, like Nikki, you and I could have a conversation. Adam, you and I could have a conversation. We could walk away from that conversation. And that was completely like the way you saw that conversation, the way I saw that conversation, completely different, right? So that's the thing that I think we have to, I have a friend that we always get together and talk about this stuff at nauseum, but perception is 99% of it all. And I think we forget that we, we just come into it assuming that, okay, I'm seeing this. So, and I see it that way. Therefore they see it that way, but it's not like, I see a great example is like, I, I'm like you, Nikki, like I burst into room, I'm cracking jokes. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, but I can be very dry too. And I don't like, I had one student on my evaluation tell me at the end in the evaluation said, said on it, I thought for seven weeks, you are a complete dick because they didn't get the jokes. And, but I thought I was being, I was being a crack up. Right. But they, they thought I was being a total jerk. And then I realized, okay, I need to really, when I do these jokes, I got to say, Hey, just so you know, I'm totally joking. And then that kind of helps. But these are the things that, like you said, you're faced with some harsh reality sometimes when we allow our students to hold us accountable. And I think that's where we get into the whole power structure is we got to see ourselves as we're not sitting up here anymore. We need to bring them and we need to, we're at this level where we can, I'm holding my hands together for the, the podcast listeners, but where they, we like, they need to hold us to the fire a bit. 
just like we're there to hold their feet to the fire when it comes to, they need to do the assessments. They need to do the assignments. They need to learn the readings and that, but they, we also need to be empathetic and we need to be caring and we need to design our courses so that we're aware of the fact that we need to reflect on all that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and this is where like caring empathy, even this notion, all these notions of how this all fits together, those cut, those notions come from somewhere. And we can't, sometimes seeing those things isn't like particularly obvious. It's all, it's very much implied. And that's where like this work of revealing and also transparency is, is quite important. Um, and it kind of makes me think too, like Tim, you used this example of international students. And in my work where I find the most energy around this uh, is with international or intercultural and then around indigenization. Um, because those two basically are, I don't know, shining a light on things that we as a, as a culture haven't really seen before. We're seeing the water differently. So, yeah. Okay. Tim's spinning out there i can see any <laughs> my brain's going a million miles a minute with this stuff because it's like yeah the practical i was just going to say i like nikki always taking it back to the practical because that's where perception is the most obvious right and yeah and and for me too with reflection being such an important part of the learning process to me in terms of practice that's where the hidden curriculum piece is the most revealing in a productive way is is through uh reflection that actually has traction and and can and done well okay so let, let me let me stop you right there because there's three things about that so one if i'm if i'm looking at a course that i'm teaching next term and i want to tackle this hidden curriculum thing what's the, when I want to reflect on this, like, when do I start? When do I start reflecting on this? Is it like, is, is there ever an instance where it's too early? No, I think it comes at course design time. Cause I mean, I mean, we were wanting to connect this to assessment uh, to go back to your original question. And I mean, this is assessment design should come right at the beginning and you, yeah, it, it happens right at the start and it happens to be about like asking yourself those questions around like, why am I, why am I even teaching? Like, what, what am I trying to achieve here? And reminding <laughs> like for real, I, I remind myself, I go through that process before I teach any class or start a new course. I have to remind myself, like, what am I doing? Because otherwise I can quickly fall into the institutional trap, fall into the, the, the grooves of of my entire life in this institution. Like I have been in this institution since I was five years of age. And, and that's where hidden curriculum gets like super grooved in. Right. Is, um, and if I don't think I just do, and you assume to go back to what Chad said that, um, we don't question it because we just assume everyone was in the same system and understands the game. They understand the mechanism of this machine, but, um, but we're, I mean, it's a new whole, it's not that way at all, especially if you're talking about international students or students who have been beaten up by the system or students who are, um, yeah, who, who have 
suffered under this, then they're going to come at it uh, very differently. And, and you're going to butt heads and you're going to have problems in your classroom. So yeah, right from the beginning, I asked myself questions. Why am I doing it? What am I hoping to achieve for my students? And how is the, the behaviors I do as an instructor from the design of my course to how I show up in the class, to how I relate to my students, how is that going to align with what I'm actually trying to achieve? And if I say I'm all about growth and improvement, and then I, I set a really tough standard and I hold my students to it. And I say, no second chances, too bad for you. You didn't study, you passed the, you failed your test. Um, then that's what they're going to hear. They're not going to hear all the great, you know, amazing things you are hoping for them. You, they're just going to be left with that hierarchy, that power structure that continue to beat them down because that's the pervading for them, for many of our students, that's the pervasive uh, message. It's all about message. What is, what's the message they're hearing? So yeah, I, it's about right from the beginning and it's at the design stage. We often design outcomes and assessments, but you also have to design how you relate, how you communicate, how you build community, uh, how you're going to deal with students who are unmotivated, how you're going to deal with students who have problems in their lives. Like you have to sort of think that through in advance. You kind of have everything worked out, but. Do you do this every class you teach? I do. But I'm obsessed so I, with teaching. Though. Like, I mean, that's, I don't think you quite oh. understand the level to which I'm obsessed with teaching. Well, I, you're in a group of people who are obsessed with what they do, but. It's a lifestyle, right? Like, let's face fact, like the, we got the wrong people to talk about with this maybe because for me, my teaching is my lifestyle, right? Like it's, I, it's not a job yet. Yes, I get paid. And there's a check that seems to come in every two weeks, but I'm not tracking my hours. If I tracked my hours, I'd be making 325 an hour when I put in all like the books I read and the podcasts I listen to and, and all the, like the reflecting and stuff like it's so Tim, when you say, well, when do you do this? I don't, I don't sit down and say, okay, I've got a, my app to CEO course is coming up in three weeks. I need to start designing this. It's always turning in my brain. Like what's going on, pushing myself. I'm trying to figure out different ways that I can include the students in this. Um, and, and the, the, you get so stuck in an echo chamber of, of one that we really need to figure out how to get out of that. And I think the only way we can get out of that is a, I thank God for relationships like these and where I can talk to you people and, and get that. But we, again, I keep pushing this back to the students. Like we've, they're the ones like when I, if I had an instructor watching me teach, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put on the best show I can. Cause I know that there's an instructor watching me teach when I'm teaching a class of students for six months or 12 weeks, or whatever, there's the walls come down a bit. And then I'm really myself and they actually see Chad, the teacher. So who's better going to assess me? Some, some associate Dean that walks in for 10 minutes to just check on my class or my students who are with me all the time and know the intricacies, know that they can get me off on a tangent talking about Die Hard at Christmas, that sort of thing, right? You want Which is the people, greatest Christmas movie ever, by the way. Which we'll do a whole podcast on that. Calm down, Tim. That'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah, it would be. I don't know how we'll tie it. We'll do that. Let's do that for Christmas. We'll do a Die Hard pedagogy podcast and I'll figure a way to tie it in. <laughs> well, that's, that's an interesting segue because that our, our 50th episode is coming up around Christmas time. So... We'll, we'll have to we'll, wow. we'll weave it in there. Congrats. Okay, so, thank, you. thank you. So before we get to, too far off the rabbit trail here of Die Hard at Christmas time and 50th episode. So you're talking about one more, students, right? Oh, sorry, yes. go ahead. Yeah. So yeah. one more thing that I wanted to say is just like, it comes back to Nikki wanting to make things practical. So let me throw this out there. Like, how do we do that then? How do we get our students to tell us how we're not, how we're doing, but 
how do we bring them into the conversation so that they can hold us accountable as we hold them accountable? Yeah, you stole my question, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> so you didn't even give me the question. So <laughs> fair enough. Well, oh. it's because you're, you're the Chad Flynn. Most right? of. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll pay for that later. Um, probably literally, right. literally too. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So when it's always churning and I, I'm there with you, like I, I love teaching. It's mm-hmm. my life. It's what I do. You know, I, <laughs> if my boss is listening, don't plug your ears right now. I, I do this for free. I've done it for free one before, right? Before I got hired on as an SME. Tim, it's it all in, you and I talk about and we hang out and that's all we do is talk about this stuff. And it's, we're nerds, right? So it, it's good. I love it. But I'm on, like, I'm being really honest with you. When I, when I bump up against this hidden curriculum thing, it freaks me out because I don't want to have that negative influence on people. And I know I don't for the most part. Like, I know because I'll, I'll walk down the street, Chad. I know this has happened to you. You walk down the street and you get some guy going, hey, Carson. I'm like, okay. And they're like, I had you in level two, like eight years ago. Best class ever. Okay. Like, I don't even, I don't remember you at all but they remember the class because they remember what we did. And, you know, yeah. And I say this to my organizational behavior classes all the time. I don't care what your mark is. Like, I know you care. I don't care. And these are the reasons why I don't care. I want you to walk out of here learning something other than just me telling you something. you, You bought a textbook. It's a reference book. Don't memorize it. There's concepts in here that I want you to wrestle with, get into it, dig into it, get muddy with it. I'm getting all fired up. Can you tell? Um, right? I don't, I'm not going to ask you multiple choice garbage questions on terms. That's, there's not going to happen, right? Um, Because I don't care about that stuff. Because a year from now, when they're in their cubicle, I want them to be able to look at the Mars model and be able to apply it to a situation that they're going through, right? That's what I really care about. But when I bump into this hidden curriculum, I mean, I, I know that there's an influence there and I'm really happy, Nikki, that you're saying that there's a positive side to this because I've read Freer and there's a part of him that makes me go, what? Like it almost, it, if I'm not careful, it can paralyze me because it's like, I, I can do this? That, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so, okay, Adam, talk me down. <laughs> okay, so I got, I got a f- couple of thoughts, but um it was interesting listening to um, Carl. Chad. Chad, sorry. I, I knew it was Mike. <laughs> <laughs> like, this isn't right. <laughs> Chad. <laughs> sorry. Um, Chad, uh, about, you were just talking about that kind of circumstance being, you know, you compared you teaching in front of an administrator versus you with your students over time, right? Yeah. And, you said they are assessing you, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I, this is where kind of alignment kind of comes into the picture in a in a real way, um, and and also in in just thinking about uh, hidden curriculum, I also think about like the role of delusion in learning, mm-hmm. um, in terms of and, and self awareness uh and and just the importance of self-awareness if you have banality if you have delusion like these are inescapable things about the human condition but part of learning is learning how to navigate those things so that we can see the world more accurately in 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 a more real way 
And I think part of the paralyzing dynamic of hitting curriculum is that we are perhaps taking as, as, in, as teachers, instructors, we're taking responsibility for things that we shouldn't be. And, um, and, and yet not taking responsibility for the things that we should be. And so part of that inventory that we do as we step into a teaching role, as we step into a place of privilege and the power dynamic is, is orienting our priorities so that they're done in a way that serves everybody and serves our reality in the best way. And so, yeah, that's not, that's not, uh, uh, an easy thing. It's a, you know, it's, it's something that we can do. It's possible. And we're learning how to do, um, but yeah, we're, I see that kind of on a trajectory. That's something we're learning how to do better. I would add to that too, that Tim to uh, like, uh, you have to forgive yourself a little bit, obviously that um, I, I can't control, I can't control what students perceive. I think that's important to realize. And so I, I can't be everything for everybody. That's another thing I I've learned over the years. And when I first started teaching, I thought I could, of course, you want to be the best teacher for every student. Um, you're not because of, um, their circumstances, what you bring to the table, uh, it's not going to work out every time. Uh, and I forgive myself for that. Like I can't, yeah, like as Adam said, you, you, you can't be responsible for the whole thing, but in terms of practical ways that I've dealt with this and tried, tried my best to move forward, knowing these things exist is, uh, I do very regular fireside, I call them fireside chats in my class. Um, you know, we talk about setting a full value contract or learning expectations at the beginning of, uh, a course, like we always say first day of class or the first week, make sure you get your class contract and have a decision. But the trouble is, is in the beginning of class, everyone's nervous. The teacher's nervous. Nobody knows anybody. No one's really willing to reveal what they're there mm-hmm. for and what they're about. Um, and so I, I, I still do it, mm-hmm. but I, I would say by week three of any course in a semester course, I'm having a fireside chat. Like I just say, right. And we literally gather around and we have a conversation and by then you sort of got to know each other a little bit. And I, I start to be a bit more open about my goals for them and, mm-hmm. and my intentions for the curriculum. And what, if they look at the, you can sort of better look at the mm-hmm. course syllabus then and say, what's confusing, what's not aligning for you? Like what's making you stressed? You know, I say that I'm here for you, but mm-hmm. you're stressed about the final exam. Okay. Let's talk about that. And so I think, uh, yeah, to go back to what you said, Chad, it's about relationship. It's about conversation. And I think you can do it in big classes. I think you have to be a bit more creative to do it. Obviously you can do it in small classes, but if you have a small class, there's, there's like no reason why you can't be having regular check-ins, fireside chats and open conversations with your students. The tricky part, and uh, this is going to be my bias revealed around assessment in my perfect world, the instructor would never be the assessor. Uh, (laughs) Except for, except for, uh, critical feedback and ongoing support for growth, but for summative finalized assessment, I always want to, uh, my perfect world, I would uh, send that out to an external body for the final. And I, I liken it because I like to be a coach. I always think of myself as a coach of learning and I think of it in terms of a sports analogy. Uh, the coach has, has can coach a team to, and the game is the examination. Like, like 
it's external from the coach. The coach is doing everything. It is a, it is very clear for the students that the only thing the coach is there for is to support them. It's very clear. And I think in, in education, I want to be that in a classroom. But the trouble is, is that in the end, in many cases, I have to then give a final exam. So I am the exam. I'm the game as well. Right. And so first it's clear in my mind what that means, but for the students, that's where their that power hierarchy becomes very clear all of a sudden it's sort of like they're like hold on a second you've sold us a bill of goods you told us you were our coach and now we have to perform for you and you're gonna like evaluate us and uh, and so that's where it gets really tricky but uh conversation and relationship can navigate a lot of that I love that analogy. Um, John Wooden, NCAA coach of the UCLA Bruins, 10, 10 championships. I've read so much about him and his, his leadership style. It just, it just inspires me so much. And, I, and what you were saying there, Nikki, really resonated with the thing that John Wooden would always say is that when they were playing a game, he never talked to his players. He never talked to his players. Like, and literally, he would sit on a chair on the bench and he wouldn't talk to his players unless there was an, an important break or something, right? But like when they're playing, he would never he would never coach them. He would never talk to them. He chirped at the other players. He would chirp at the refs, but he never talked to his own players because he firmly believed that's what practice was for. And he spent so much time focusing in on the fundamentals of practice. And by the time they got to the game, he didn't worry about how they would perform in the game because they did it so much during practice. And and at first it really sucked for him. Like he didn't start winning championships, I think at UCLA until he was in his fourth or fifth year there. Um, maybe even a sixth year. I can't remember, but it was a while before it picked up, but that's, that was his philosophy. The other coach that comes to mind is um, coach from uh, shoot. Now I lost his name. Anyway, uh, he was a coach for the San Francisco 49ers in their heyday back in the eighties. And, and he wrote a book called the score will take care of itself. And he was very much of the same mind. Like, you teach them the fundamentals in the practice. When they get to game time, they know what to do. They know how to operate. They know how to work together. And you don't worry about the score because the score will reveal how well they practiced, right? And I'm, and I'm looking at this bridge into education. I'm like, okay, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff here that I love. But I want to go back to Chad's question. And I think you started going down this road, Nikki, about the fireside chats because Chad asked a really good question. Okay, so how do we do this? How do we involve our students in this? Like if we really, if I'm thinking about it being authentic, meaning that it's including other people, that I'm, I'm really working at minimizing my bias, my inclination towards a specific type of exam because it, it's easy to mark or it's easy for me to put together. Um, asking myself the question, is it really assessing what I want them to learn? Those kinds of things. How do we include the students in that process? Ready, go. Student built rubrics where that'd be a good start of course that's my assessment hat on there uh so we don't do unto them we do with them sort of my philosophy mm -hmm, yeah. uh mm -hmm. yeah so we, i mean say that again so we don't do unto we don't we don't like throw things at students we do things with them so uh oh, okay i almost feel like a student when they get a rubric that was just created for them well one they'll never read it i mean i've met a student that actually read a rubric uh, but if you sit down and you have a conversation with students 
and I've been doing this for years where you say, okay, here's the assignment. Well, one, we can have a conversation about why this assignment. I never, ever give an assignment without a rationale. Uh, it's written right there in the syllabus. I know Adam's seen this. Uh, I say assignment, why, how it maps to the outcome, and then the rationale for why I chose that assignment in that methodology. Why a test? Why a oral? And, and we can have a conversation about... Um, do you think that's fair? Like, is that a good assessment? Like, is that going to test your, and, and I always have it open for students. If you don't think that's right, then let me know. And I've, I've had students come back to me and said, you know, I don't like your journals. Can I do something different? And, it, and I say, will it meet the outcome? Will it prove that you're competent? And they show me and I'm like, done, we're good. And then you have a conversation about like, well, what do you think would be sufficient to show that um, you have proven that you can meet that outcome? And then uh, what does that, what does success look like? And yeah, you build the rubric together. That That's a huge start because it's all out transparency. It's all there, right? You can. Well, that's a massive mind shift too, right? Yeah. Holy. Takes time, but it's so worth it. Okay. Writing that down. Rubric. Get them involved. Any other ideas, Adam, Chad? Well, yes, lots of them. Um, <laughs> so I just to push back and play devil's advocate right now with um being being instructors who love the relational aspect of things and I would say that for myself like I'm an introvert by nature but I'm an extrovert in classroom so I love having conversations with students I love getting to know them I'm very relational to me that's the best part of the job that being said I also know that there are instructors out there who when they are introverts they are introverts and the idea of talking to somebody is like sticking forks in their eyes and they love the, they love their subject matter and they love to teach and they might be great at that. But the relational aspect to them might be very, very, very difficult. And what do we do with that? So I'm going to do give a little pitch here. I just finished this book called geeky pedagogy. I just bought that book. Oh, it's so I good. I just bought it's it so too. Good. You must have, we must have all listened oh, to the, uh, the Bonnie's latest podcast. I think it's where it came from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she, I, I've Jessamine, I follow her on Twitter. And then, so finally I, I bought the book and read it. It's all, and the, the subtitle is like a guide for intellectuals, introverts, and nerds who want to be effective teachers. That's, so, that's the reason why I bought the book. It wasn't the title. It was the subtitle. Yeah. And so there's like, she gives lots of great tips. And so about this, she talks, there's a chapter called reflection and she talks a lot about how we have our, the student evaluations that come out at the end. And so she talks, about how oftentimes that maybe we should be giving those the, a year later because you know people have time to reflect on that what she, she suggests is and this is something i've been trying and it seems to be working for in my context anyways is having some sort of survey and I've, i give them like every two weeks now to my students and it's just a check-in survey so it'd be like a fireside chat but through a, a survey and you're, you're asking questions like how did you find the unit on a scale this is a Likert scale one to five and then you leave some open-ended questions like, what did you like about this unit? What did you not like about this unit? So when I started doing this and I've been trying this, I've been doing a variation of it for a couple of years, but I really went full on intentional on it this past term. I found that the first one, the first two were just generic and a lot of people didn't answer, but a couple of them did. And so when I, when the, when the ones that did put the time into say, like to give some sort of criticism, I acknowledged that. And I would say that in the, in the classic, Hey, I'm not saying so-and-so, but as a person said that, you know, you thought that perhaps I, I put a little too much emphasis on this part of the project. So I, I hear you. 
And for the next project, maybe we're going to dial back. And, but not calling the person out, not, not saying so-and-so said, or Tim said this, <laughs> which I probably would do. <laughs> well, but, yeah. <laughs> we'll talk okay. about that tonight, Tim. Yeah. Um, well, you know, but what, what you do is, and then what happens is they start to think, wait a second, he actually listens and they actually, and then all of a sudden now I can't stop them. And you now you kind of, you open up that Pandora's box because they realize, okay, he actually listened and he made a change based on some other students comment. What about mine? And so you start seeing them come in and then you start, you got to be careful though, because you're going to, what you thought was amazing. And you maybe not so much like apparently me playing eighties rock music is not a good thing. <laughs> and when, when they have their group stuff and they were quite <laughs> taken with that, I know. So I failed that guy, but I read yeah. the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> but it's little things like that. You've got to be careful. To you've got to be, yes or no. Yeah. You've got to be ready to, and like Nikki, like you were saying, I way at the beginning of this, we've got to be ready to hear the stuff that is going to push us. Right. We're asking our students to make mistakes and, fail and, and then get up and rise and learn from that. Let's do the same. Like, let's have that time where they tell us what we did wrong and then say, you know what, you're right. And I did make that mistake and let's get up and dust off and do a little better. So it kind of sounds like you're asking them to be a participant in your own reflective process, right? So you're kind of opening up, you're opening up the kitchen table and saying, Hey, come on, grab a cup of coffee. Let's sit down. I'm going to be doing this reflecting anyway. I want to invite you. I mean, it sounds kind of stupid when I say it this way, but I want to invite you to sit down and, and have input into my own reflection on this. It's the only way it can work, right? Or else you're in that echo chamber of one. And what does that do? It sounds good. Well, yeah, it is. It's the best sound ever. I mean, I'm, I'm the greatest. Just ask me, right? But That's right. That's right. It, it's, you just have no harmony though. And that's, yeah. true. that's, that's the only that's true. thing. Yeah. Unless you're throat singing. Um, <laughs> but yeah. um, the, the other thing I was just going to, that kind of, I hear woven in this is that, you know, the discipline needs to be at the center. Um, and um, maybe I didn't hear that, but that's what I'm thinking. No, it's <laughs> um, a perception thing, right? I didn't say that. Yeah. So obviously it's yeah. out there. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I'm just thinking, um, just as you, uh, are doing that reflection piece, right. You're weaving that into how you perceive the discipline. Um, and, and then the thing I think in terms of inviting the students along on the journey, uh, as in this coaching kind of role, the only danger I have seen and experienced is that when you start to change things and students can feel their voice and feel that their partner in this, um, is that, um, uh, the, the, the power level isn't flat and it won't, it won't ever be flat because, and, and, but I think that, folks who go, well, you know, the hidden curriculum, the power structures, we need it flat. Like, I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily the best thing, right? Because you, as a person who studied the discipline, you, un you understand something of the discipline that needs to be learned. Right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes learners don't, or they may miss understand what's best for themselves. Um, and I say that really gently, but that's why there's like a mutual vulnerability in it all. And, and that's what needs to be flat. Maybe. I don't know. I love yeah. that. No, you're so, I think yeah. you hit it right on the head. It can't be flat, right? It's lumpy. Everything's lumpy. And that's, 
nothing's uh, this conversation we have all the time. It's not binary. It's not black or white. It's not right or wrong. It's not power structure up here, down. It's going to, it's everything's kind of moving and lumpy and all of it's everything's a big mess. I'm just going to drink my beer. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we need but to burn it, it down. Cause it's lumpy yeah, and a big mess. Burn it. Burn it isn't, down. <laughs> isn't that why it's a beautiful and why it's a practice and an art of teaching, right? Like it's nothing's perfect. And I can do, and what I love about it is that when I have a class this term, the next term, everything goes away again. I have to try it again. And it's all different. And they're going to bring up different points. And it's all, it's a constantly dynamic, moving, beautiful mess. Yeah. Yeah. I often look at it as a, as in, in an open systems thinking perspective that it's a dance, right? And it takes me a while to get used to the dance partner. And then once we click, it's good. Like we're, we're dancing away and I'm, you know, I'm no dancing with the stars caliber stuff, but, and then you're right. When the class ends, I get a new dance partner and we have to go through that process again. And it's really about yeah. trust. From my experience, it's really about trust. It's all um, about trust. Yeah. Everything. I think that's relationships yeah. and trust. That's what yeah. teaching is. Well, you can't, ha- you can't have a solid relationship without the trust. Right. And, and, and I'll just go back to the organizational behavior stuff. Like they, they, most of the students who take it, they want to take it because they're, they're in a, they're in a business uh, degree and, and it's, it's a prereq for, you know, six or seven courses up the ladder. And then, you know, we, we soon realize that the content isn't about organizational structure and organizational change and organization. Those are components to it. But when you really look at organizational behavior, it's about human behavior because organizations are made up of humans. They're not buildings. They're not websites. And, and understanding other people's behavior comes second to understanding your own behavior and asking yourself, why do I think this way? Why do I act this way in certain situations? And so this is, I, oh, I'm not going to sleep tonight. This is really good. Um, so coming into the assessment part, Nikki, this is, <laughs> we spend all this time talking about all this stuff, which is great without getting into the, into the theory part, which, you know, I'm kind of sad that we didn't, but maybe for another time. Um, so we talked a little bit about the implications and impact of hidden curriculum in our praxis, but what about that? last half of the question, especially in our assessment methodology, how, how do we, how do we work through some of this? Yeah. So this is to go back to the point I made about like roles in assessment and, and, you know, there's an ideal world and then there's the world we live in. And um, it's a lot easier if the instructor is not the assessor, because those two things, when we talk about that hierarchy and the power as an instructor, we want it to be flat obviously, because we, under, I mean, it's not totally flat because of the discipline. Obviously a coach is, you know, a, a coach wants to work for their students always, never against them. Uh, uh, but they do carry, they have, you know, they can set up frameworks to help them be motivated and to set games and competitions and give feedback and things like that, that will help them. But in the end, the buck doesn't stop with the coach. The coach is always for them, but in a, in a, learning environment it's not that way unfortunately it's very rare that we get to just be the coach Uh, i think of if you're like studying for your mcat and you go pay someone to like help you study for the mcat that's a kind of an example of where you know the the person helping you be successful in the mcat is only only there for you to do so um the mcat will be the the game at the end and i think in the trades to be honest i've said to quite a few trades instructors they have this a little bit because really a trades instructor is helping their students be successful at their trade 
in the profession they're in Mm -hmm. and on the ITA exam, like this external exam. So they get to kind of be a coach. And I've told um, my welding instructor at Coast Mountain actually a few times, he is actually a phenomenal volleyball coach. And I said, just take those skills and be a welding coach. Like you get to do that. Uh, And that was kind of a bit of a change of mindset for him because again, we, it's that hidden curriculum that says, well, coaching looks like this. Education looks like this. It's the structure. And so, yeah, they, they slip into the grooves. But in terms of uh, if you have to design assessment, then uh, it's around that alignment. Like, does your assessment structures align with what the discipline is about, what the, what the industry is about, and what you're about? And if you have the option to design your own assessments, which most of us kind of do to a certain degree, then, yeah, that you, it's really exciting to do that so that if you're if you are all about growth and learning your assessment should actually you should set up opportunities for students to be able to see their own growth and learning so they can continue to be motivated by that if you if you say uh, this discipline is about application and understanding and then you slap a 50 page mobile choice test at them at the end like there that's what they remember that's the hidden curriculum that it doesn't matter what you did in the course that's what they take away because that's so pervasive and it's so emotional and um, challenging for them that the the thing that's the most emotionally laden will be the thing they remember most and assessment is the most emotional laden. So I I feel like assessment is one of the most exciting places that you can actually uncover the hidden curriculum and you can really help students to, um, navigate through that and be successful. I don't know. That is not practical at all. That was very high end. So Adam, you, you and Chad come up with something (laughs) more practical. I already gave student, student design rubrics. That's a good one. An aligned assessment. <laughs> well, and you, you also had like peer, I mean, peer assessment is another one for sure. Um, yeah. And also having like, uh, I think, did you have the peer review example, like that a board, an outside board would evaluate? Oh yeah. So non-disposable assignments basically is, uh, I'm really big on that because then that that's like, you're the coach and the, the game is the, you know, the, it's an outside body that you're preparing performances, like actual performances in front of an audience. I mean, you're just for the student to get them ready for that. And, uh, and the audience will be their, their yardstick. There's a, there's a buzzword, right. For these types of assessments starts with an A authentic assessments or Or real, real world, (laughs) real world assessments. Right. I I hate that term real world. I got to be honest with you. I hate that term real world because it makes me feel like everything that we do in education is not real. That's what I think too. I'm like, my classroom is pretty real world. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I just, I can't, oh, I I hate that term. So when we're out in the real world, oh, so that means we're in, we're in a chamber right now. Like we're in the wonderland, right? We're in a rocket (laughs) ship going to Mars right now. Yeah. Don't get me started. That's another soapbox I'll climb on pretty quick. Um, so if I tie it back around, the student-built rubric can help flatten the curve because you're, you're, you're striving towards an, an elimination of bias from the, from the coach or the faculty member or the instructor, right? Am I, am I tracking with this okay? Well, you're also sending a message to students that about learning, right? right? It's a very different message about learning when you get them to build it with you. Right. And then would that build into the peer assessment piece? Because if they build it, 
they hold each other accountable to it in the sense now you're still, would you still remain a coach through that process? Because I mean, you, you've helped them build it. You're going to help them be accountable to it, but it's no longer you being the gatekeeper per se. It's, it's the rubric that they've created being the gatekeeper. If I can even use that language. So, so I like, it would be interesting, like assessment to me is feedback, right? Like that's, that's what it is. It, and the, the, the gatekeeping part is more an understanding that someone's at a certain level of proficiency. And it's interesting that, um, yeah. And I, I as I was thinking beforehand, I think because the power of economic uh, kind of understandings of how education is situated, like that's why kind of gatekeeper holds its kind of place, right? Um, because we like to keep per people at certain levels and castes or whatever, right? Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's important to situate what what is actually assessment and how does that play into the bigger picture, right? If if learning is founded on you know relationship, as we're saying, then how does assessment configure into this relationship? Okay. Well, then we get beyond the whole idea, and then we. I mean, this maybe obviously should be another podcast because we can get into ungrading, right? So we can talk about ungrading and about, cause I use self-assessment and I use peer assessment with my students and it's been a game changer. And I know Tim, I use that term quite a bit, but it honestly has been. So when you can bring them into it, cause not only are we teaching our students that they need to be critical of themselves and their peers in real life, but that's, that's what they're doing, right? Like they need to be part of that process as well. Instead of us just throwing a, a multiple choice quiz at them and having them write the answers out, why can't we build these and I keep using the buzzwords, but authentic assessments that they can go ahead and build that would be use, useful to others out in the real world. And then we can come and get them together to peer assess. <laughs> but we could have them like, it's, it's just such a process. And then why are we always assigned? Why do we always have to assign this percentage to it? And I know it's, yes, it's always been that way. Okay. But why? Like, burn it up, burn it down. What'd you say? Burn it! <laughs> <laughs> But that education was built for and the industrial revolution and it's now we're in the information revolution. So maybe we should be starting to rethink our assessments towards that instead of trying to keep our students so that they're going to be good managers in the factories that don't exist anymore. Well, it goes back to what Adam said, which I love around feedback. It's that messaging. Mm -hmm. Even if you take a final exam and it's all multiple choice and you fail it or you get 60% or you get 80%, whatever arbitrary score gets put to that. It's it is arbitrary. Um, mm -hmm. even though it's like counted out, um, the, what met, what you're going to get feedback about that. You're going to get feedback about yourself. You're going to get feedback about the discipline. If I take a, if I take a, like, I mean, even I dare I say you take the, the ITA finally like red seal exams. Uh, what is that saying about, what is that saying? Like, about welding or pipe fitting or elect electrical, that this is the kind of the final step that you have to take mm -hmm. before you can launch into the world. Like it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and then our <laughs> students, 
we haven't even touched on test anxiety. So when I t- talk oh. to my students, yeah. I'm having to tell them, you know, if you do well on this test, you know what that's going to tell me that today you did well on that test oh, exactly. because you're, it doesn't yeah. tell me anything about whether you knew the information. I've got a student right now who, when we're doing our like group sessions, he's rocking it. He's everything's working out great. He can hundred percent every single time. When I throw a test in front of him, he bombs him every single one of them because he's got test anxiety. So should this poor gentleman have to fail school? No, we've got to, we've got to figure out different ways that he can show his, his understanding of things. And I think that's what Adam was going back to and what loved he's love what he said too about the feedback. It's all about the feedback. And that's, we need to think, rethink that feedback. There's a multiple choice really tell me that Alan understands DC fundamentals. No, me watching him do it and coach his fellow students and answer questions in the chat and put together a friggin' wicked project that tells me that he understands it, but him doing a test at the end, that's fill in the blank, do some math and a multiple choice. It doesn't tell me, it tells me that he's got test anxiety. Yeah. And it's very counter um, productive because one of the nine essential skills that has come up in the trades world is critical thinking, uh, multiple choice answers. Uh, I've seen some decent ones. They're still not croaching onto the critical thinking piece. And um so to give some background, the Red Seal exam for most uh, years ago was an endorsement on top of your trade qualification. That's why it's called RSE. It's a Red yeah. Seal endorsement. Yeah. Now, some provinces have made it the benchmark um, to get away from that other word. They've made it the benchmark. But statistically, you look at most trades, 50% of people who enter level one don't make it to the Red Seal exam. So you have a 50% dropout rate already. Then when they get to the exam, some trades have a success rate of 50%. And so out of, out of 1,000 now that have entered, you've got 500 writing. And now out of that 500, you've got 250 passing. Yeah. Something's wrong with the system, mm-hmm. but no one's addressing it. And I've been to these exam banks and you look at the questions and you're like, for crying out loud, why am I asking that question on this kind of exam? And somebody will pipe up, well, they need to know that because in Ontario or Manitoba, this is what we have to do. Okay, show me the literature where this comes from so I can begin preparing my students to understand the concept. Oh, there is no literature. Well, where did it come from then? Oh, it came from my head, came from my experience. This is what I had to learn when I was a journey person. I'm like, are you insane? Right? And so the, the whole idea here of, of bucking the system and burning it down is awesome. Um, <laughs> and you used right? to be, you'd always tell me like, whoa, Chad, whoa, let's just not burn it down yet. But now you're right on the train now. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm lighting the fuse. Let me just Pyro, tell you that. Pyropedagogy. Pyropedagogy. Woo. I'm lighting yeah. the fuse. I'm lighting the fuse because I get, I get really fired up about the dropout rate and the failure rate. And no one's like, if you're half of a, half of the instructor you say you are, you should be looking at that and saying what's wrong. But I'm not hearing enough instructors say, there's a problem here. Well, the other thing is people take their Red Seal exam after thousands or hundreds and thousands of hours of on-the-job training too. So these yeah. people are not incompetent. These are no. not like no. beginner no. electricians. No. That's right. And, and it goes back to what you were saying. Yeah. It goes back to what you were saying before about the coach, because I've been that in level four. Eight weeks they're with me in level four. Five weeks is gas training. The last two and a half weeks is getting them ready for the Red Seal. There's no new learning happening, very little. It's all review right back to day one till you write this exam two weeks out from now. Right. And I'm, and I'm still seeing people fail in that process. 
you know, and there are great instructors teaching level four, not just at our institution, but at other institutions, there are great instructors and they don't even get a full pull all the time. They do once in a while, but not all the time. And it's like, it just, it just frustrates me, frustrates me to no end. And that's kind of one of the reasons why this hidden curriculum thing came up about assessment. So we're going to have to have another. Can, um, can I just leave, leave you with one thing? So just as I was listening to this, <laughs> so it kind of is, it became apparent to me that failure is a symptom that reveals the condition of what the hidden curriculum is in. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's feedback. Love right? it. Love it's, it. a, it's a feedback mechanism and, and we, we're not paying attention to it because we're too worried about what, what's that going to do to the meta system that we're in. And, you know, we've been in this thing for 40 years now. We can't change it. It's like, well, if you don't change it, it's going to run across a, a bridge and it's going to destroy itself. And, you know, just like we were hearing two years ago, you can't put trades online. You can't do that. That's insane. Why would you even think about doing that? Uh, March 9th comes. Hello. Next week, you got to put your course online, right? And there's still people in the system who think, oh, we're going to go back to the way it was before. Just just, uh, just plug your nose and we'll be there. Mm, not going to happen, people. All right, I'm fired up. I'm ready to, to keep going for another four hours, but we can't keep you here for that long. So thanks again, Adam, Nikki, Chad, brother. Good Excellent. To back. Let's do this again. Absolutely. Yeah. Sally at the next one. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She'll get fired up too about this whole oh, assessment yeah. thing. She, she will. just whoo. She'll she'll be listening to this and she'll be just like, I, 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 I. she'll want to just say stuff in the middle of it. So it'd be all good. All right. I, I, I can already see your taglines. Blow it up. Uh yeah, blow it, it up. down, totally. whatever it is. <laughs> With lots of gifts. She's gonna have lots of gifts everywhere. Yes. I can't wait for Sally to listen to this one. Yeah. Don't, Sally, don't, don't miss you. Too loud at don't the miss you, Sally. <laughs> Well, no, do it, do it. So if you're listening to the podcast and uh, and you got some feedback for us, we'd love to hear it, right? Yeah. Um, we won't mention any names uh, unless it's Chad or, or Mike, but uh, um, <laughs> give us the feedback. We'd love to hear it because this is not a topic that's uh, too small. Yeah, to assess us. Um, <laughs> assess us. Yeah. We invite you to the kitchen table, grab a cup of coffee, sit down. Listen to Fireside Chat. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah, sit down and uh, we'll have a chat. How are we doing? Let us know. Anyway, thanks so much, uh, Nikki, Chad, and Adam. Pleasure. As always.